Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode where we are talking all about the latest episode of Andor, which premiered on November 2nd, directed once again by Toby Haynes, and written also this week by Bo Willimon. This was another super intense episode. So intense and also like kind of fun. It's so (laughs) weird to say that, but there were definitely moments of levity in this episode to balance that intensity from last and carried over into this one. The prison situation is so intense to me. And then everything with Bix and Dedra was very intense too, but there's other stuff and we're going to talk about it. But I am ready to talk about this episode. So excited to get into it. And I have a glass of apple cider. We're celebrating fall <laughs> today. And <laughs> cheers I wanted to, to fall. Remind, yeah, cheers to fall. <laughs> cheers to fall. I wanted to remind everyone that last week we actually got to talk with a lot of our podcasting friends on a roundtable interview with the composer, Nicholas Bertel. It was so fun, and he is such a genius. And so if you haven't listened to that last episode, it's around the like hour mark of our discussion from last week. If you want to be, if you want to listen to that, it was great. Yeah, it was really great. I think everyone we've been lucky enough to talk with uh, from the creatives who worked on Andor has just been so giving with their answers. And to talk, this is the first time we've gotten to talk with someone who is a composer. Uh, so it was it was really great to hear Nicholas Bratel talk about uh, this, this season of Andor uh, from the musical perspective. So it was really great. And yeah, like Charlotte said, we had some of our favorite podcasting friends on this roundtable with us. It truly kind of felt like the dream team. <laughs> it was us, uh, Talking Bay 94, Blast Points, Friends of the Force, Triad of the Force, Jedi News. It was just all around like a really, really great time and really, really great questions from everyone. So absolutely check it out if you haven't yet. Yeah, I was a little nervous. I think I've been pretty honest on this podcast that I think that talking about Star Wars music feels... Like I'm scared to do it because I just don't feel like an expert at all. So I was nervous for the interview. Caitlin killed it with the question. And yeah, anyway, that's a little behind the scenes, me (laughs) freaking out. But uh, it it worked out. It was great. And again, he is such a genius. It was one of those moments where you just listen to everything he says and you're like, you operate on another level. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's so great. And yeah, like Caitlin said, I feel like most of the people who work on Andor, at least that we've talked to, operate on another level. And mm-hmm. it kind of shows in the show because the show is on another level too. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of music, this beginning of this episode, episode nine, there's a new Andor theme, like the theme music in every single episode. Nicholas Patel actually talks about that in that interview. But this one was particularly different. It had a little bit more of a techno beat. And every time it plays, I think it's very exciting. It's my heart pounding, which I think is the the tone of Andor, honestly. But the new one this week felt very different from last week's. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I totally agree. It was much more techno. And then we had something pretty sad and uh, orchestral at the end, which we have before in the past on Andor episodes, but this one definitely stands out. I think because there was a lot of that techno feel uh, throughout this episode to then have this kind of pretty stark contrast throughout the end credits, um, it definitely stood out a lot. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, so should we dive in to kind of our sections, I guess? Yes. <laughs> every uh, every week we've kind of been going through, I guess, like set pieces. I feel like that's kind of how we've been dividing up because there is a lot of cutting back and forth between uh, different people and storylines. So that's kind of been how we've been cutting it up this week. Last week we kind of put Cassian and the prison story uh, like near the end of the episode. But this week, guys, he's number one on our list. <laughs> and you said at the top of the show that there was some levity in this episode, whereas I think this episode was almost like hard to watch <laughs> and to no, rewatch. No, it was hard to watch. I When I say levity, I'm thinking about Dedra and Cyril. Uh, okay. And yeah. I'm really excited yeah, to talk about like it. That's like the only like- piece of levity. <laughs> It's like, what are we talking about here? Levity. <laughs> there was just like none of that tone in yeah. the last episode at all. Exactly. Right? That's so true. when you compare, <laughs> there's a little bit of a difference. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. We are starting with Cassian this week and we have Cassian, of course, still in the prison and things are rapidly shifting inside of the prison this week. When we kind of open there with Cassian and what are they, table five, I think, we see that Cassian is much more kind of with it and he's already kind of planning with some other uh, inmates there about a way to escape and we see them talking about the guards coming down on the lift they are I guess sawing through pipes in the bathroom kind of discreetly and on their bathroom breaks and Uh, We get to know uh, kind of more of what's going on in the prison. And of course, it it definitely feels like we're leading towards a riot. Uh, But I wanted to say that I was kind of surprised at how uh, proactive Cassian was in this episode. I feel like last episode, we spent a good bit of time talking about how uh, kind of out of his mind or not in his right mind Cassian seemed. He definitely seemed to be shutting down to me in the last episode with how quickly he kind of adapted and, and how silent he was for a lot of that episode. So to transition into this week where he is much more a, a version of Cassian I'm familiar with of kind of taking charge, uh, really kind of trying to get information from like Kino, Andy Serkis's character and everyone else and like trying to get them in the mindset of a riot and wanting to escape. I don't know. It was just kind of surprising to me. It felt like a really big shift between episodes. And I think I expected more of a transition. Like, I think I always expected Cassian to get to this point in the prison, but it seemed, I I just felt like there would be, yeah, like I said, kind of more of a transition. It's interesting that you say that because I agree. I was a little rocked by his, uh, steadfastness to try to figure out a way out or figure out weaknesses in everything. However, last episode, I complained, I guess is the word to use, that I was confused about the time jump. Yeah. And you and I actually both missed this because a lot of people have emailed me and told me that there was actually something on the bottom of the screen at the very end that said 30 shifts later. Mm. So there was a time shift, yes. And if we think about the casting that we saw in the last episode, he was bewildered. He was shocked that he was there. But at the end, we do have him 30 shifts later assimilating and working hard. And we commented on that, but I don't think we knew that it was like that much time had passed. Yeah. So I think it's something to keep in mind about, I do think there's a tone shift, but there needed to be one anyway. And I think that maybe this is realistic towards how it would be to be incarcerated, I guess. I also think that this episode introduced a little bit of tension between the character of Melshi and Kino, which I thought was interesting because we know that Melshi is part of the rebellion later. And it's kind of clear to me that 
Melshi and Cassian and Kino are like the first off Melshi is right across from the bunk of Cassian right and the scenes in which Cassian is like bugging Kino to give him information it feels like there's a sense of Kino resenting Melshi he like often throws him a punch and it, I get the sense that once Cassian was like made friends with the people around him, he realized that they were all kind of in the right mind to learn about what was happening around them. And uh, yeah, I just feel like there's there was a, a weird sense of tension between like us versus them with Kino and Cassian. And obviously that gets a little bit resolved in the end of this episode. But I do get the sense that time has passed and friendships have formed and alliances have formed. You know, I think that's OK for us to accept that. And I also think it's OK for us to be a little jarred by the focused attitude that we see here with Cassian. Yeah, yeah. I think the relationship between Kino and Melchi, Melchi is interesting because uh, you're right, we do see them kind of clashing, even though Cassian is the one who's kind of really starting to bug Kino about, you know, how many guards on each floor, having ever thought about escaping. It's whenever Melchi brings up these things that Kino kind of, I guess I would say physically reacts, <laughs> throws him a punch <laughs> as you put it too. But Melchi has been around for a lot longer too and so is Kino and I think we can all understand Kino's perspective here. He just wants to get out. He believes that there is another another side to this, that if he does his time, does it well, he'll get out. And he believes that for mm-hmm. everyone else, too. I think um, mm-hmm. the way that he treats, uh, what is his name, uh, U- Olaf? Olaf? Olaf. Uh, Olaf. Olaf in this episode, uh, when Olaf says his hands are hurting, like when they're um, out on the floor working and everything, and he is like very reassuring to Olaf about, you know, you only have 41 days left. There's, you know, just wait a little longer. And even when he's sick, um, he's telling the doctor, you know, he only has 41 days left, like just get him to that point. And you can tell that he, um, I don't know that he like actually does want what's best for everyone there. And I know we kind of talked about his demeanor in the last episode about how um, if it came to it, like if he was sick or something, like remember when he tells Cassian when he comes on, like if you're sick, come see me. If you're hurt, come see me. If you have another problem with another uh, inmate, come see me. And we had kind of talked about how, you know, he's he's been given authority within a prison complex system. So if Cassian comes and tells them he's sick, he's probably just going to kill him. But in this episode it shows that that's not Kino that Kino wouldn't do that but the Empire would clearly do that which is what they do with Olaf Um, so I think that was I was glad to kind of see that that wasn't necessarily true and I really loved Kino and Cassian's relationship in this episode just to see how it changed from you know because this it feels like this is another kind of arc. Like we had episodes one through three and uh, four through six. And now we're having kind of, I imagine, eight, nine, ten. This kind of feels like that middle episode. And so to have this kind of uh, like where we leave off uh, with Cassian asking once again, how many guards are there on each floor? And this time Kino responds. Whereas before he was just really annoyed at Cassian and, you know, telling him he wasn't going to tell him, keep quiet put escape out of your mind if you want to survive this place. And Cassian at that time even asks, well, when you leave, will you tell me? And Kino is still not going to do that. But then at the end, we kind of see this resolution, this resolve between the two of them that I think is definitely going to be leading us into the next episode. I cannot wait for the prison riot. It's like your stormtrooper rebellion that we never got. 
I think it sort of is. And I didn't put that together until you just said that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. But I just like, I don't know. I feel so strongly that it's time to become ungovernable. They, they're they in there and they're going to kill them if they don't do something. I know that they're going to do something. It's going to be, and it's going to be epic when it happens, but pretty heartbreaking when the doctor says and tells them what happened on floor two. It, the quote is, they made a mistake. A man who was just released on four ended up back on two the next day. Word got out on the floor and they killed all of them. I mean... It's so, I mean, it's so, it's, it's grim. And I think that in our conversations, this was such an intense episode. I have to say, I think that the, everything with Olaf was really violent and graphic to me. And it was violent for a reason because you're supposed to understand the inhumanity that is happening there. But this show does not shy away from any sort of violence like that, which is surprising and just not surprising. It's not surprising. The tone of the show is it, it like f- fits the tone, but I think Star Wars there's sometimes a fade to black even with Bix. I mean, her the torture device, we'll talk about that later, but usually when we see torture in Star Wars, it's a little we don't really see that much. There's usually a door that is closed and then they you hear screaming or something like that. Yeah. But this was a lot more than that. And yes, a door was closed and you did hear screaming, <laughs> but it was with Olaf's death and then Bix's torture. There was a lot happening here. Yeah. I and I also thought it was pretty heartbreaking that the doctor's purpose was not to save people, but instead to like keep either keep them available to work or kill them. Mm-hmm. And him saying that he do- he doesn't care about his name, I mean, I feel like that's a self-preservation tactic. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was crazy. And also, like, the last week we talked about what the signing between the hallways was and what that sort of communication was. And you had sort of postulated that it was because people, that person couldn't, was potentially deaf and therefore using sign language to actually have some sort of communication. Mm -hmm. But I think we found out that this is the only way that people talk to each other through different zones, right? Yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, it's so crazy. And I think that that, what I think the shape of this particular prison means that you can only talk between like one hallway to the next. So the way that information moves is probably really slow. And it it is really slow. It's not probably really slow. It's fascinating to me that the shape of something like this could dictate that, you know? Yeah. Well, we know that there are different floors. And I think that this use of the sign language as communication builds off of Cassian's kind of introduction to everyone else on his floor where they're asking him for information and he doesn't have any. That information is very limited, obviously, and they're very isolated. And the fact that these these different floors never mix, you know, there's not like a, a cafeteria where everyone goes, right? We know that they have the food just in their bunks. And it seems like the only people that they pass are um, what I imagine. I don't think they've said this, but I think that other that line on the other side of them in the tunnel is the night shift because they're the day shift. Uh, so I think that I think that's the passing, I imagine. Yeah, that sign language, uh, I think Kino says it about when they're first asking about, when they're first hearing rumors about what happened on level two. And Kino says something to the effect of, you know, it takes a week for any information to get all the way up here. Like what makes you think it's accurate? Because it has to go, I guess, from like the 
like the very bottom, like all the way up, like zigzag all the way up. And since they're at the top, uh, at least it feels like they're at the top. They're not at the bottom, at least. Um, it's like a giant game of telephone, uh, but with sign yeah. language. So uh, mm-hmm. how how accurate is that information by the time it gets all the way up there? So I, yeah, I think I'm glad that we got to see more of the continuation and use of the sign language. It ha- I'm sure it had to have started with someone who was who actually needed to use it, right? Probably. Probably. But yeah, that that is now kind of this uh, form of communication now between uh, all these different tunnels Mm -hmm. and uh, our levels of people when they're waiting in the tunnels. Um, I will say that uh, Olaf definitely reminded me of Clone 99 from the Clone Wars. So that was sad. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Not great to think about that (laughs) and that whole story. And, And yeah, it was just, it really was heartbreaking. His his death. You know, I just, yeah. a show like this, like you don't have that much time with characters. And I think, you know, you bring in a character who's really old like that. And it just, when you first meet him, he's already having problems like with his hands and with working and you see the rest of his team picking up slack for him. And I think you just kind of can see the writing on the wall that he's probably not going to make it out of this situation, but to see how it actually all goes down and that there wasn't even like a moment for Kino to tell him what was going on, that it was just the shot was in and he was gone. There was just something so desolate about that and really sad and yeah I um I was really sad (laughs) um the other thing we wanted to mention kind of uh in this section though was another you know we're talking a lot about comparisons to Rogue One and uh there was a moment in the in the beginning of the episode with the prison section when Cassian is you know asking Kino about how to escape and they're talking about uh Kino is worried that the Empire, that the guards are listening. And Cassian is, you know, telling him that's ridiculous. They don't care enough to listen. They don't have to. And, you know, he starts screaming kind of maniacally at the end. Uh, Is anybody listening? Nobody's listening. Nobody's listening. And it definitely made me think of that line in Rogue One uh, when they transmit the Death Star plans out from Scarif when he asks Jin, do you think anyone is listening? And again, just uh, an intense, heavy moment. So intense. When you texted that to me when we were watching this, I was like, oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) no. And I think they're, by the way, I think they're doing that subtly in throughout this entire show. These reflections of Rogue One and things to make us feel aware of where we're going. And I think that's how a prequel works, obviously. But stuff like this, it hurts. Um, I actually saw someone online talking about the time grappler, which is the man who on Ferrex, this is an aside, who bangs the very loud clanging drums in the very beginning, in the morning of uh, Ferrex's daily life. And the name time grappler is really interesting because I think that the show Andor actually is grappling with time and how much time Cassian has left given the fact that we know his end. And so I I don't know. I feel like that was a really good point that was made about, and I don't one we haven't talked about with that particular character, um, especially with that title, that there's just these reflections of understanding Cassian's own end and his sort of hopeful sacrifice that happens at the very end of um, Rogue One, but this understanding that, yeah, we only have this much time left. This series is set five years before. This is how much time we have left and how how long are we going to get 
how long are we going to take with Cassian before we get closer and closer and closer to that time? Yeah. And also to show just how quickly uh, the galaxy changes, like how quickly the Empire's fist really comes down too. Because up Mm -hmm. until this time, it's been this kind of, I don't want to say lax because it's not lax with the Empire, but we saw what happened after Aldani, right? That's everything that Luthen has been trying to get moving. He wants the Empire to be crueler throughout the galaxy. And that's what happens. So we're, I think it's really kind of putting an interesting spin on this period between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope of showing, you know, five years is actually not that long in the grand scheme of things and just how rapidly the Empire is able to take full control with full surveillance and really begin to um, be, you know, the, the cruel dictator that we know. Absolutely. It makes me think of that um, quote, that we talked, we have, keep talking about, about the pace of oppression outstrips our ability to understand it. Mm-hmm. And is oppression, that the quote? Yeah, it is. Yeah. That was uh, Nemec. And then yeah. uh, Luthen said last week, oppression breeds rebellion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I find the prison scenes to be brutal. And I think that the show is really driving home that what is happening in these prisons is for all intents and purposes, slave labor. Mm -hmm. And uh, they don't care about them as people. They don't care about them at all. All they care about is work and there's no freedom. I think Kino is going to make it out next week. No, Mm. I don't. He's got, he's got, he has to die to then become the ghost of Snoke. (laughs) (laughs) Don't bring Snoke into this. (laughs) We know that there's a pickle jar of Snokes. So I don't, I don't know if Kino is a part of that. I I just, I don't know. He lends his DNA to that. Yeah. That's what they, they take him out of this prison and that's getting weird. (laughs) And and we're done. (laughs) I got to say, I definitely, um, it's still weird to me to see Andy Serkis in this role. I'm going to be honest honest but you're like the only one that thinks that you like everyone online is like this is great every (laughs) single person online every single listener I don't know I just anyway this episode I I felt like he became a more layered character to me in this episode and it was kind of easier for me to see him as Kino and not Snoke right last time we talked about how he is a prisoner just like Cassian and Mm -hmm. the understanding of how he's taken up power because he was given that power when he became management of the floor all of them yeah the floor and how that power is um an illusion in a lot of ways and so I'm glad that by the end of this he sort of woke up finally and realized that like they're never getting out and that yes that power was an illusion and it's time to figure out a way to Mm -hmm. get out of here there are 12 guards on each floor yeah. Yeah. That was a really satisfying end, to be honest. Yeah, um, right. Even though it was really sad, it was really satisfying when he answered that question. Mm-hmm. And it really like, it was one of those moments that was a good cliffhanger. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> one final thing before we leave the prison part of this episode, the voice that is the intercom voice in the credits is referred to as the voice of God, which Caitlin and I thought was great. <laughs> Cheryl and I have this I don't even think it's like an inside joke but the um Tom Kane in the beginning of all the Clone Wars episodes when he voices we call it the we always called it the voice of war where he like gives the Mm -hmm. you know why can't I think of what it's called like the 
The crawl, basically. The crawl, yeah. It has a name that's, like, associated with wartime serials and stuff. I just can't remember what it is. But he gives the update of where we are, you know, like, this time on Geonosis, Jedi Mass, Jedi Knight, Anakin Skywalker, and his Padawan. So, you know, like, he goes through the whole thing. And we always called him the voice of war. And then he's also the voice of Captain Yularen, too. Um, anyway, so to see the voice of God in the credits was kind of funny, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, it's dark, right? It, it's it is, dark yeah. because that is the like the fact that this is where potentially these people are going to spend for the rest of their life. And then there's this mm-hmm. like omnipresent voice that is called the voice of God. I just um I think we looked it up that there is some sort of THX connection, but I it's it was kind of vague. Um and I I just I don't know. The name is kind of funny. Had, we had to mention it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it definitely. It, I'm, it feels like a name that the prisoners, what they call that voice on the yeah. intercom, because of course yeah. he says, you know, um, on program, and if you're not on program, we're gonna, I forget what they say, but basically turn the floors red indiscriminately. So you know, mm-hmm. that's definitely a life or death situation. Okay, let's move on to talking about the Empire. So Dedra, Cyril, and Bix. Um, I'm including Bix in this just because I think her main interactions were with the Empire in this episode. So I think Caitlin and I both felt like Dedra suddenly became really scary in this mm-hmm. episode um, and how she was very much the villain in this. And I think in the past it has been Grey, and I'm, I'm kind of, to be honest, like kind of sick of talking about how Grey her character is and how we're still rooting for her and things like that. But I don't think she was Grey necessarily, but I think there, we talked about that like underdog component of it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's been a part of her. So yeah, Grey, yeah, she's always been very much on the Empire side. And I know we always yeah, talk about the sure. possibility of redemption, but that's never seemed her path. And it's clear she's taken like 15 steps um, down the empire path by the time we get to this episode. Well, it's just like the whole Palpatine phrase of like all who gain power are afraid to lose it. Mm-hmm. Like she's yeah. gained, she's gained power True. and she's using it. And I think that she loves it. Oh yeah. Her acting was so good. I was very scared of her. The conversation that she had with Bix was a top tier acting moment in Star Wars for me. And I feel like it deserves to be shouted out um, because I was genuinely scared. Mm -hmm. I was The pacing, the everything, everything. Yeah. The look in her eyes at the very end when Bix says, you're not going to believe me anyhow. And the, her look, the, her face right then when she goes, no, I suppose not. It was just like, I was actually scared of her. It was kind of a holding my breath situation of, oh my gosh, like she, yeah, I think bringing that Palpatine quote was great, Charlotte, because that is absolutely what has happened with Dedra. She has been having to prove herself for the entire series thus far. And now she is um, in the position that she wants, investigating whatever she wants. And we see in that, uh, back in our favorite conference room uh, later on, that she's giving this report with such confidence and such authority in the room. And everyone is kind of Everyone is kind of tracking with her investigation now and is kind of all hands on deck, it feels like. Even though the supervisor, so not to skip over, we'll, we'll go back to Bix and what happened with her torture, but um, Bix eventually gives up the information about Cassian and Lucin and kind of everything that she knows, right? And so we get to that conference room and uh, 
Dedra is putting together the pieces that this could be connected to Aldani. And her supervisor is still kind of a little bit hesitant. But, you know, in previous episodes, we saw him chastise Dedra for making these kind of broad connections and seemingly ambiguous connections between events. But now he's like, well, that's a bit of a stretch, but you should follow it. You know, there's a lot more trust between them now and uh, allowing her to kind of push the empire's resources to really see if there is this connection there and uh, to find out everything they can about Luthen and that Cassian is kind of the key to all of this. Completely. Um, I think the torture situation that happened with Bix was, I mentioned this before, but it was pretty, it was so graphic and I felt like I completely understood what Bix was going through, even though you don't see anything, because it was essentially like VR of listening to the sounds of a massacre and mm. a chil- children dying. I mean, the, I, I, like kind of speechless, even thinking about it and talking about it. And the way that the camera focused on her eyes and went around and really focused on her face in those expressions when she was going through that, I think was a really good directorial move. And was genuinely frightening. So I think in the conversation about like, oh, oh no, like Bix like spoke. I don't feel that at all. I think that I would have done the same thing. It seemed genuinely awful. Well, the fact that they, the doctor, Dr. Gorst spends so much time describing what she's about to hear. Mm -hmm. It just. It was evil. it, It was evil. Yeah, it was so evil. And that, there was this, it was that planet that they referenced. It kind of became a comparison to, uh, or it made me think about how the Empire talked about the Dani on Aldani, about how they had been yeah. there for 12 years, but they had kind of like had this quote unquote peaceful relationship with the Dani's. And, uh, but they were, you know, going to have to blast the, the sacred site in the end. So if they became a problem, then. We'll just get rid of them. And on this planet that Dr. Gorst was talking about, those people put up a fight uh, from the very beginning and they were exterminated. And not only that, but their deaths were recorded as proof of mission. Like, it's just, it's, it's awful. awful. Yeah. And then to find out that, you know, whatever type of species this is, wherever they were, that the sound of their death has some kind of effect on other people it's just i don't know it's 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 really dark and i had to listen to the conversation twice because i wasn't fully tracking i think because it was just kind of so overwhelming what they were talking about but yeah this was this was really dark um like everything mm-hmm. happening in the prison was really dark but this scene between dedra and bix and then dr gorse describing the torture device kind of for me kind of took the cake in this episode mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just made me think of all the other characters that we've seen go through torture later in the timeline and how actually awful that must have been too because this is a new piece of technology that is being described, right? And how much has it progressed and how much, like what happened to like even like Leia, Han. We have no idea what mm-hmm. really happened in A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back because like I said before, it's sort of a fade to black, a door closing. Um, there's no description of it besides the... Um, the like you see the needle for Leia. I but I have to assume it's more now given this piece of information, right? Yeah. That this exists too. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. Oh, it was very intense and 
um, I really felt like in the moment before before the doctor stepped in um, with Dedra that like Dedra could like straight up kill Bix at any moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope um, I hope Bix is able to recover because they say that multiple yeah. sessions is what leads to more brain damage. Oh my god! I know. And they're keeping her alive too because she's a witness and has to identify Cassian and Luthen. Ugh. And Luthen, right? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, it's bad. It's real bad. It's really bad. And then they also talk about how they are keeping tabs and eyes on Marva. I j- absolutely not. Dedra, De- you step Mm-mm. away from Marva. Yeah. <laughs> Get away from her. Away. <laughs> it's not okay. It's not okay. <laughs> we also found out with the Empire that they have captured a pilot, I think, who works for Anton Krieger. And he randomly came up in last week's episode between uh, Luthen and Zagarera. Uh, Luthen wanted Saw to work, do something with Anton Krieger. And Saw was like... Absolutely not. And we find out that a pilot of Anton's has been captured this uh, this week in this episode. And the Empire is – the conversation was a lot to follow. But I think basically that they're trying to like set up uh, – like catch Anton Krieger basically. And they're trying to figure out how to use the pilot as bait. And they said something about like they're going to kill him, put him back in the ship, and then let the ship like drift into traffic so that it looks like an accident. So a lot <laughs> – a lot going on, and I feel like that's going to come up again later because now we have two episodes of them talking about Anton Krieger. Yeah, it feels like a potential botched rebellious attack is coming because if I could assume anything is that we see a success with Aldani and then it feels like potentially we'll see a failure and then maybe a success with the prison riot with some failure along the way too. Mm-hmm. I just feel like there has to be a failure in in the story, right? Yeah. Because there else there wouldn't be a, a war, right? I don't know. I just it feels like with all the talk about how Anton Krieger isn't necessarily favored by Saw and he had all these complaints about him anyway that like maybe that's going to be the failure and they're already on top of him. So Yeah. yeah. And also like it proves that Saw was potentially right in not being involved in that and potentially shows a weakness in the net of um the network basically yeah. with Luthen, but not necessarily because not every single thing can be a success by like what means in which you would define success. I think that, I don't know. I think that with rebellions come great losses too. And uh, maybe that'll be a conversation that comes up as well. I'm just speculating here. Well, that would parallel nicely to Rogue One. Yeah. Yeah. Which, but you would say that that was a success, but also a failure in a lot of ways. I don't know. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it was a failure. <laughs> yeah, in a lot of ways. But the the number one thing that they were seeking was captured. Yeah, but in a lot of ways, it was a failure. Yeah, yeah. So, I uh, not a failure, great loss, right? Great loss. Yeah. great loss. Great loss. Yeah. Failure is not the right word. Yeah. There. All right, let's move on to our snapshot of levity in this episode, which. <laughs> was partly was Cyril and Eddie. I was so excited to see Cyril's mom back. I love her. I feel like they just have the same conversation every week over the breakfast table and I will take it every single week. Give me. Edie's just pouring cereal and I love it. (laughs) I love the idea that Cyril just insists on eating the same cereal, these crunchies that he's had since he was a kid. And that's just that's his breakfast, you know. <laughs> yeah, I I loved it. Um, but let's get to the let's get to the real, the real star of the show, which was Cyril 
stalking Dedra. Dedra. And, I mean, and having this, I don't even know what you call it, but this like <laughs> declaration. Really intense conversation. Of love, <laughs> but it wasn't. It was uh, the first time I watched this. I was, you and I were actually watching this at the same time. And I was like, what is going on? Yeah, we were losing it. Losing it. What is he saying? (laughs) You put them in any other show and it's like him confessing he's in love with her. I'm just. Well, he basically is, but he's saying he's in love with her actions (laughs) and how hard (laughs) he's, she's working. And I mean, the lines are just insane. Just being in your presence. I've realized that life is worth living. I realized that if nothing else, there was justice and beauty in the galaxy. And if I just kept going, perhaps my deranged belief that there was something better faded for me in the future was the was a dream worth clinging to. And then they touch. Like, I, I don't know. I, and he was like, I, she was, he was like, I'd never lie to you. I I Charlotte transcribed this whole conversation, so I feel like we need to read it. Um, but <laughs> I hadn't looked at notes and and when I went in to go start some notes, I saw that you had put in this whole conversation. <laughs> so I was like, yes, thank God. <laughs> it starts welcome. off when Dedra realizes that it's him just waiting, you know, in this um concourse. But also area. The, the admittance that he does it all the time. Yeah. Wait, oh yeah, yeah. So he goes, <laughs> I'd never lie to you. I, I needed to find you. And it's not that easy to thank you for what you did and what you're doing. And to follow on and to try to follow on the conversation we had last month. And Dedra, to her credit, is like WTF. She's like, that wasn't a conversation <laughs> you were brought in for questioning. <laughs> you know, are you stalking me? And then Cyril responds, I know you work here and I come here sometimes to see if I can see you. And she goes, I'm an ISB supervisor. Do you have any idea how much trouble you're in right now? And he just is like not even listening. He's just. No, his on. eyes are like filled with tears. Oh, my God. Yeah. He, I thought I'd ruined my life. Also, to be to be very clear, we're laughing now. If I were in Dedra's position, oh I'd gosh. be sufficiently freaked out. Oh, yeah. No, 100%. So, um, like in the real world, this is a creeptastic thing. Yeah. But I. Uh, I think I just find Cyril so funny. Yeah. And like his character so steadfast and his patheticness, I guess, is just um, so appealing. And I have to say, Keelan and I actually, I don't think we've talked enough about this, is since we went to the Andor premiere, we got to watch the first few episodes with a theater experience. So we got to watch it with an audience, right? And the audience loved Cyril. (laughs) Laughing, laughing so much at anything that he did, his expressions and things like that. And I I think it's worth sharing because sometimes when you watch these shows, like you're just watching it with your family or just by yourself, like Caitlin and I do, right? And I think it was an interesting experience to have an audience watch a television show, right? Yeah, and definitely. People people loved him. Loved him. And same same with me, but it was it was very clear to me that he was to an, an audience standpoint like a humorous addition to this group, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's like the straight man that is used for laughs because he. it feels like in this conversation with Dedra that he has, yeah, he's fallen in love with her work ethic, <laughs> which I don't know. <laughs> and the last thing he says to her, he says, I want what you want. I sense it. I know it. It just feels like the way he says it is so intimate. And she's basically like, if you come near me again, I will have you put in a cage. And I mean, put in a cage on the outer or on rim. the outer rim. And this is when I bring back my like, yes, Dedra. Then I quickly leave it now. But um, <laughs> yeah, this uh, this really brings to light our conversation with 
Denise Goff and Kyle Solder, right? Is that the same? Uh, the yeah. actors who play these characters and how they kind of hinted at perhaps like a love story romance uh, angle between Cyril and Dedra, but it wasn't clear cut. And I think like the way that they talked about it was kind of this like mm, tone. And I think seeing this conversation... <laughs> Seeing this scene now, I think, sheds their interview in new light. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think this is the end of it, by the way. I think this is... Oh, my God. I hope not. I, I don't I don't think this is the end of it because because what's next, right, for them? What's next for them? Yeah, um, no. They're I think totally going to come he back has now, Yeah, I think that he is now... Okay, so in the last... There's something interesting to note, right, is that she did clear his his past offenses, even though she said she wasn't going to in that like torture or question, not torture questioning situation that was happening with him. Um, so I think there's more that could happen between them, but this was everything. I was losing it, losing it. I thought this was so funny and great. It just felt so ridiculous. (laughs) The writing was so good. Yeah. And also like, it was pretty similar to Anakin Skywalker's like love confession. I gotta be honest. Like the cadence, the breathiness, the the overall words, I guess, just being in your presence. I've realized life is worth living. Oh it's very gosh. similar to Anakin Skywalker's, you know, being around you. It's intoxicating. Yeah. <laughs> Can't <laughs> breathe. You know, the whole thing. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. I really I hope it's not the last time. <laughs> and like I, I – there's something about these two characters that I just kind of want to see them – dig there as much as I was like oh my god Dedra was scary in this episode but I want to see them kind of burn a little bit I guess is into like um feels like there's a lot of energy with Cyril and a lot of energy with Dedra and I feel like they're headed on a path of big discovery I guess and I just kind of want to see it all come crashing down or something in there I don't know big destruction big discovery Right. I don't, there's, there just has to be something that we're leading to that will, uh, I'm I'm just here for it, I guess is the point. I can't wait to see where their characters go. And just like with every character in this series, it is insane how invested I am in every little facet of their life. Every single character they introduce, I want to know everything about. It is insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, me too. Absolutely. All right. Should we move on to our last kind of section with Mon Mothma? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, Charlotte, I am so sorry (laughs) that we formally have to put to rest Vel as Luthen's daughter's theory in the graveyard. Yeah, it's okay. Six feet under, closing the gate. We we resurrected it last time as a zombie theory. Mm -hmm. We're we're actually killing it now because it's not – we're making it – making the undead dead again. So (laughs) – so spooky, very Halloween. Stake in the heart, um, and that's a vampire. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, different. We burn a zombie. Uh, oh no, you burn a vampire too. Oh wow, huh? Maybe we I think can you also do anything. You do zombie. a lot of different things. Too. I, yeah, anyway, there's not like a set way. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Val is Mon Mothma's niece. Makes sense. I think that really solidifies a lot in my head. You know, as much as the theory is dead, you know, no, the theory, the theory is dead. The theory is dead. I didn't want to. I was just going to go down a path, but I'm not going down a path. Okay. Um, yeah. So I really enjoyed seeing Val and Mon Mothma interact. I think that they really have each other's back. And 
I want to know how Vel got involved really in these rebellious acts and like who came to who. Yeah. Uh, like, bef- was- like in, so that they can open the, this communication between them. Like what was the catalyst that made Vel act? Yeah. And who, I don't know. who introduced Luthen? Like did Vel introduce Mon to Luthen the other way around? How did all these connections come about to have two women in a very prestigious Shindrillan family be involved with Luthen? Yeah. Super interesting. I'm dying to know everything. And I, I think Mon's advice to tell her to just be a, a good little rich girl for a while was really interesting. Yeah. It was good to see Vel repeating Sinta's lines to Mon because I think we see the past couple episodes, Mon has been very um, nervous or and anxious about what's been going on. It doesn't feel like she has as much communication with Luthen anymore after uh, it kind of like her financial backing has kind of become more tied up in tax regulations and things like that. I could be wrong. We just haven't seen them interact in a while. She's been very nervous about a lot of things, I think. And even in this episode, asking Val, like, what have we done? You know, what is he up to? And Val is very much keeping, you know, who are you even talking about, right? Like, we're not even going to say his name. And she's like, we signed on. What does she say? She says, we signed on for a cause where we chose a side and we're fighting against the darkness. And she even repeats back what Cinta said about we're giving everything we I have. I really liked that. Yeah. And we're taking and we're what's, taking left, what's left. Yeah. 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 It really, you know, it reminds us of their relationship too. And that that is, is something that Val carries with her. And, you know, has to remind herself of too because she definitely showed those anxieties to Cinta uh, last week when they were both on Ferex. So it was good to see that she is, yeah, like I said, really carrying that with her and then offers that to Mon Mothma in this moment when Mon Mothma needs it. There's definitely something bubbling under the surface about Shindrill and Customs uh, that potentially Leda, the Mon Mothma's daughter, is potentially resenting because the conversation at the dinner about being married off in Shindrill and Custom, I thought it was kind of interesting. Maybe this was just my interpretation that they sort of went with the like in-universe homophobia a little bit about how Perrin says some super rude thing to Val about how it's only widowers left for for her, but it's he, he sort of potentially doesn't know that she's a lesbian or something. Super rude. Everything that he said. Then the whole thing about like the arranged marriages mm-hmm. on Chandrilla, I think is just super interesting because I would think that that's what Leda resents Mon Mothma for because I bet she just wants to be a teenager. And even Mon and Perrin, I mean, their relationship isn't the happiest. And there's a comment that when Vel gives Leda this like beautiful dress and it's it's really nice and Mon says, well, you have to see if your father lets you wear it. And she goes, he lets me do whatever I want. <laughs> it was um, it was really rough and like made me think that, oh, I wonder if Mon is ever going to or has in the past imparted this Chandrillon custom onto Leda at all about getting married young because clearly that is not super happy for Mon Mothma and Perrin either. So I don't know. I thought the dinner was super interesting. Lots of loaded, rude comments being thrown at that super fancy table. I was going to say, lots of loaded comments, lots of incredible glassware. So, oh my God. Mom has like a really big, like whatever bowl, it was like a mix between a bowl and a teacup. It was really large. It was like too large to be a teacup, but too small to be a bowl. (laughs) 
and it looked like it had tea in it. <laughs> Everything on the table reminded me of that like really fancy coffee service that you can get in some places. Mm-hmm. I think like here in New York or like in Austria or something. Yeah. Where they have this like, I don't know, science experiment looking thing that they mm-hmm. serve coffee out of. That's what was on the table. It was crazy. I was like, ah, I want to sit there. I know. I want I want the Shangelan tea service. The food. I know. It looks like both insufferable and fun to sit there and, and do. Yeah. No, and absolutely. Drink and yeah. eat. To comment on Lena, though, I do think this – I have been thinking about this, like Mon Mothma and her relationship to Chandrilla. There was a comment at the party last week when they were talking about their arranged marriage. And, uh, you know, they were actually married at 15, which is even younger than 16, of course. And the people that they're talking with make this comment of, you know – to everyone their own, like everyone's customs, even though it's kind of crazy to have this custom of having children be married off, right? These arranged marriages between 15-year-olds. And, uh, but we know that Mon Mothma has kind of had some, I wouldn't say snarky comments because she's not a snarky person, but kind of these sides where she's referencing Chandrillan customs with kind of, and it kind of feels like she could be rolling her eyes in the scene. Like when we first meet her and Luthen and Luthen is like, oh, another, you know, another event for your Chandrillan customs. And she's like, yes, there are so many. Um, she said a couple of comments like that. And then also in this episode, Vel mentions that she's going home for the pilgrimage, but no one else is going. Like Perrin and Mon Mothma and Leda aren't going, at least that we know of. Yeah, I got the sense, though, that that pilgrimage was for like single people. Oh, really? I hadn't thought about that. Maybe it is. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. So that would make sense if they're not going. So I, mm-hmm. the other part of me wonders, you know, if if Shandrilla, if the people of Shandrilla are still really invested in their traditions and and that kind of thing, if they're going to expect Lita to be married off here pretty soon, and even if it's not something Mon Mothma necessarily wants for her daughter, if she has to keep up appearances while she's doing this right. other like really important thing as almost like a distraction. I don't know. I think that could go a lot of different ways. And yeah, I am eternally hopeful that Lita kind of sees I don't know. I, I'm rooting for Leda to see what her mother is doing and uh, become a part of the cause one day, honestly. Yeah, it reminds me of a quote from the Revenge of the Sith novelization of when Padme and this crew, Mon Mothma, Bail Organa, and a bunch of other senators are creating the Delegation of 2000, which becomes the rebellion. Unclear if that's still canon, right? But she does say, in order to keep all of this under under wraps, she says, be good little senators, mind your manners and keep your heads down and keep doing all those things we can't talk about. Um, it reminds me of like, okay, yeah, she, Mon is going to continue to have to be a good little senator. And maybe that includes having to have her daughter keep up appearances, like you said, yeah. um, which I think creates even, even more of a conflict between her family. <sighs> it's rough. It's rough. I don't envy her. Um, I even you see her in the Senate and by the way, they redesigned those pods after Yoda and Palpatine <laughs> ruined had, them. Had to get uh, interesting. Yoda's nail scratch marks off of them. <laughs> oh, I can like yeah, hear it in my head. Ugh. Hear it in my brain when you mentioned it. Oh my god. But they also added the like Empire insignia on it. So mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, no one was listening. Everyone was turning off their pod and leaving when she was speaking. I mean, it was awful. She's really trying and it just looks so um, demoralizing, I think. 
Also, there was a little bit of a conflict with Tay in this episode too with Mon Mothma. It's clear that he's struggling to move money. Um, even Leda at the dinner table calls Tay mother's old boyfriend and Mon is surprised by that. And I don't know, sort of a weird confirmation to me that there's some tension there. <laughs> and I guess that Perrin was the one that told Leda that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, Tay wants to introduce a third party to this concept of moving money around. And the evil banker's name is Davos, which I thought was interesting. He says <laughs> the wealthiest thug of them all. I find this name interesting and a little on the nose because Davos is the World Economic Forum in Switzerland where like all the billionaires go to every year. So I think that was a, a real world nod. That was pretty interesting and very on the nose again. And clearly like Mon doesn't want to work with someone who really only has like wealth in mind, right? Yeah. And I, it made me think a little bit about what side Tay was on. And this feels like a risky, like a really risky move. And I wonder how it's all going to shake out because it feels like something's about to break. Yeah. Well, this definitely puts Mon Mothma in a similar situation to what she put Luthen in a couple weeks ago, where she was wanting to bring in a third party with her and Luthen. And he was the one that was so hesitant about it. And now Tay wants to do the same thing. And Mon Mothma now is like, wait a second. No, especially when she learns who it is. So yeah, it definitely feels like something's got to give. I think we're pushing towards all of this being much more out in the open, right? I don't think we've really talked enough about the end point here for Mon Mothma because we know what the end point is for Cassian, right? But for Mon Mothma, she's going to become the leader of the rebellion. So all of this kind of hiding that she's doing has to end, right? It's got to come to an end at some point. I would imagine we would see that in this series. And that is everything Luthen is kind of pushing for here is being more out in the open, making the empire more oppressive. Um, People keep talking about this throughout the show, like we can't hide forever. Uh, So I think that that is, you know, when whatever it is that breaks, whether it's something to do with this guy Davos or Right. I think it's going to be a combination of things that are happening around the galaxy and with all of our major players here. But eventually Mon Mothma is going to become the leader of the rebellion. And that means she's going to be giving up the life that she lives right now. So I think that is I think that's ultimately where like I think we're seeing the beginning pieces of that storyline fall into place here with a character like Davos. Completely. Yeah, she can't just casually move money around and expect people to be okay with that. I don't know. It feels like, I I don't know, what I just said is probably not the right tone, but I just feel like where she's moving a lot of money around, I would assume. Mm -hmm. and 400,000. Yeah, it's going to get noticed. It's sort of also a question of like, okay, Mon, you're moving money around and that's what you're doing in the rebellion. When are you going to actually do something that's not just money, right? Like, I think that Mm -hmm. this is very important, obviously, for a rebellion to exist. I'm not not saying that, but I think her conflict with Luthen kind of, like, Luthen has kind of put Mon in her place of being like, you know, this we have to act. What good is just creating a network if we don't act upon it? Mm -hmm. No weapon, what did he say? No weapon was ever created that wasn't used? Yeah, and I think that, sort of, I'm waiting for Mon's catalyst, I suppose, for her to become the leader of the rebellion, which she eventually does, right? Mm -hmm. So how does she get to that position? And I think she has to be a little bit more cutthroat than she even is right now. 
Is it something that happens with Leda, maybe? Oh, my God, Caitlin. Oh, my God. I don't know. We can't. I, don't- <laughs> <laughs> we can't. I don't want that. I know. Me neither. You me know, neither. I've seen some people online be really mean about Leda. And I just – I want to remind everyone that she's just a teenage girl, okay? She has – I don't want anything bad to happen to her. She's living so. a, ch- a charmed life right now and hates her mother. And being fed a lot of lies yeah. from her dad, too. Like, yeah. seems like a rough – home life and also this potential that she could be married off to someone that she doesn't even know and live a life that she sees her parents live which is a loveless marriage basically Mm -hmm. so and she knows that she watches everything that's her whole thing yeah yeah (laughs) if there's one thing a teenager can be pretty observant when they want to be yeah yeah great episode though really really good episode yes very much looking forward to next week's me too. So excited. And next week, I mean, we only have three more episodes left. It's kind of crazy. Don't say that. I, I then, just really enjoyed this ride. It's they've the show has pushed Star Wars in a really, really, really good direction. I agree. I agree. All right. Well, that is going to be it from us for this week's episode of Andor. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you want to talk more about Star Wars, you can find us online on Twitter at SkytalkersPod is the podcast handle. And then our personal handles, Charlotte's is at Clarity and mine is at Caitlin Plusher. We also have our website, SkyTalkers.com, our Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. You can find us on all of those platforms. Just search Sky Talkers Podcast and we'll pop up. We'll be there. <laughs> and um, if you haven't left us a review yet on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would really appreciate it. If you took a couple seconds to go and do that, it helps other people find our show and join in on the conversation. And lastly, if you're interested in other ways to support our show, places to hear bonus content, ways to get involved in our Sky Talkers Discord community, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. Yes, and I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Tim, Paul, Danny, Megan, Becky, C, James, Nick, Christina, Rachel, Jessica, Emma, Kara, Allie, Olivia, Justin, Benjamin, Molly, Jose, Nina, Alexa, and Jedediah. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you.